Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Dr. Simon, and the show, as usual, is the stories we live by. And today, I am going to indulge myself uh, and tell you the story of my story as a psychologist. Not my personal story. I'm not going to get too much into my own personal craziness, which is uh, there and quite considerable, uh, as is almost everyone's. Uh, but I want to talk about my evolution as a psychologist and tie a lot of the stuff I've been talking about since last July. It's about a year since I've been doing shows here at Blog Talk Radio and really having quite a good time doing it uh, and have a small following. Um, and I want to give a history of psychology from my point of view. The last 40 years, what I learned uh, by being called a clinical psychologist, a little bit of my own education, uh, and why, at this point, I really have no contact with any professional aspect of modern psychology, of, of clinical psychology or psychiatry. And what brought this up uh, was that um, uh, Marion, who, who is listening again, hi, Marion, how are you? Uh, Marion wrote me a, a, a message, and she said, you used to have a website, psychtruth.org, and do a blog on bravenet.com, uh, and that was true, and I can't find it, and the answer is I've taken it down. Uh, the fellow I started it with and I have parted company, not as people, I think we're still friends, but my ideas have become so divergent from his that we couldn't really agree on what the uh, format or the future direction of that website would be. Uh, in fact, our opinions are really clash in, 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 in many fundamental ways. The other thing was that keeping that website alive was a lot of money, and we were spending a good amount of money for something that was kind of static. It took an awful lot of work and money to put anything new on it, except for my blog. Uh, he had no interest in writing. He's very busy. He's a psychoanalyst in New York and very much involved with an organization that I'm going to mention in the course of this discussion. And by the way, if I don't finish today, I'll just uh, continue this next week. I'll indulge myself another week uh, and, and add what I think I need to uh, for next week. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I had started doing this last year, and I find that this is much more satisfying to me. and doesn't cost me anything, and in many ways uh, it's so much easier to speak than to sit and write. Uh, famous Englishman said that writing is easy. Who was that? My mind always goes blank with names. Uh, famous playwright, British playwright, said writing is easy. I sit my desk by my desk with paper and pen until little beads of blood break out on my forehead. Uh, I, I find writing very difficult and organizing my thoughts that way very difficult. When you speak, it's completely different. You can go from one thought to another and people will follow you, not, not if you uh, write. Writing has to be done in a sequence that's different. So we decided to tear down that website, but there was a lot else behind that, and a lot of that had to do with the conflict I had with him and the organization that I belonged to, an organization known as the International Center for the Study of Psychiatry and Psychology. And they have an interesting website that I think you might find useful, uh, www.icspp.org. And if you are of a mind to be an anti-psychiatrist or, or critical of the field, 
uh, it's a nice place to belong. Uh, although, as I'll get into, from my point of view, not radical enough, not, not critical enough of many aspects of the field, of the modern field of psychiatry and psychology, that I think one has to be critical of. So let me tell you about, oh, one more thing I should say before I do this. While I really find it difficult to belong to organizations, I think things happen in organizations, uh, people become different in organizations. Power struggles invariably occur. Egos invariably become an issue. Um, and so when you know somebody as an individual outside of an organization, it's very often totally different than knowing that same person uh, as being a member of the organization. And indeed, each of us, I, I think, is many different people. And I think that when you're in an organization, when you have uh, ambitions in an organization, you behave differently. I think we all do. We behave differently than when we're sitting around our own kitchen table uh, with, with our families. Um, you know, I can pull shtick on people that I could never pull on my wife after living with her for 45 years. Uh, there's not anything she doesn't know. So when the bullshit starts, she knows when it's there right away. And I think this is true for most of us. Uh, and again, there, I think there are people who are only organizational. It's, everything is, is public and nothing uh, gets out in terms of what's private. But I wanted to say that most of the people I've met as psychologists, as individuals, independent of their being part of the field, are wonderful people. They were bright and caring. And many of the people who practice what's called psychotherapy, a term I think we need to be very critical of, uh, earn their living by it. But when they close their door, what they actually do is very, very different than what is publicly proclaimed to be done. And, and this I discovered for myself. And one of the problems I had with ICSPP is that publicly it maintains this image that pills are bad and psychiatry is bad, but psychotherapy is all good. It's much better. And I said, yes, it is much better to go to somebody and talk through certain problems, but you're still not going far enough. You're still dealing with the idea that people are sick. And you have to say people are sick in order to justify signing insurance forms and earning a living. And I'm certainly not against earning a living. I'm very glad. One of the few reasons I'm glad that I'm older now and retired is, A, I have grandchildren, and, B, I don't have to work for my living. I don't have to become part of organizational life in which you have to make deals and be silent about very important issues when you think the field or other individuals are wrong. Uh, and I, as I've said, if anybody who's been listening to this show, clinical psychology, which is based on psychiatry, and psychiatry are based on a lie. And the lie, as I will get to, because I want to do a historical development of this, is that you're sick if you're confused, if you take drugs, uh, if you come back from war and you can't function in what is called normal society. Hello, Teja Vu, Teresa, how good day to you. Um, if, if you can't function this way, you're called sick, post-traumatic stress disorder. And we sign insurance forms, and more and more we give you pills called medicine. And that, to me, is wrong. You're not sick. You've been to hell and back, and when you've gone to hell and back, you don't see the world the same way as before you went to hell. And those of us who are lucky enough not to have to gone to hell simply don't want to hear what you have to say in most cases. And the fact that you don't fit in doesn't make you sick. It doesn't make you maladjusted. 
Maybe those of us who have remained silent about this lousy war uh, and pretend it doesn't even exist, you can't even find out when soldiers are killed anymore. It's not even in the news. We're, off, we're offline about this. Maybe we're sick. But you see, it's not sick. It's the way we deal with our pain. And there's a moral issue. You can say this is all wrong to behave this way like the soldier who, who smokes dope and, and doesn't uh, participate, or the person who pretends that the world is a sunny, wonderful place and bad things are not happening, dangers are not there. You can say it's wrong, but don't turn the word wrong into sick. Sickness is something you have when you have arthritis of the knee, like I do, or high blood pressure, or diabetes, or a stroke, or heart attack. Those are physical conditions, and that's when you need a real doctor. Those of us in the field are not doctors. We're, 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 we're pastors of the soul and pretend not to be. We're educators. We try to get people to listen and understand their own voice. But I want to get into that, okay? So I like the people in the field, but I don't like the field itself. And the reason I tore down my, my uh, website is that I can no longer get along with my friend who put the set side up with me as a professional. Um, we live 1,200 miles apart, and I'm sure he cares about me as much as I still care about him, but he's now part of an organization, another organization, that I think is basically protective of private practice and protective of the idea you can sign insurance forms because people are really sick when, in fact, they're not sick. And if we want to lie about it, let's admit we lie about it. We need to sign the insurance form so people can afford to go for what we call psychotherapy, and people in therapy can afford, and the doctor can go home and put food on the table. It's a stinky way that the field has evolved, but that's the way it's evolved. I say let's not perpetuate a lie, and the lie is that you're sick. So let me tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I grew up in New York. I was... I, we were all middle class when I was growing up, and it took me many years to discover that my father, who worked in the post office, and my mother, who stayed home, and we lived in a $51 a month walk-through apartment. In a, in a, well, we were wealthy. We had an elevator in our building uh, in the East Bronx. Uh, everybody was middle class. We weren't really middle class. We were kind of uh, lower middle class. Uh, we weren't poor. And one of the reasons, really, we weren't poor is that we had wonderful transportation, good schools, and I lived three, four blocks from Bronx Zoo and Bronx Park. And so if we didn't have a backyard, we could go out on hot summer nights and spread a blanket and uh, buy ice cream and be outdoors and look at the stars. And we felt safe and we felt clean. And so uh, we had things that had sort of been taken away by the changes that have taken place in society. And I want to talk about some of those to a degree because I don't want to get become a sociologist about this, but you can't help it. The changes that have taken place in my field since I came into the field 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, are, are, have taken place because society changes. And then society has changed, but society has changed in part because of what my field has done. And I want to get into that at some length during this discussion. So it's clear. Um, I was born in the Bronx, and I grew up in the Bronx, and I became rather cynical, not cynical, skeptical. I'm not too cynical. Well, I think some days I am cynical, uh, but I'm skeptical. And I became skeptical in a number of ways because I learned very early, just by observing people, that so much of what people say is bullshit. When they're publicly together, and I put myself in this, 
I could bullshit with the best of them. Um, what I thought and what I said were often very, very different. And I became aware that this is the condition that most people are in. And when you have a good friend or people you love, the bullshit stops and you can talk honestly. Uh, interestingly, I have discovered that a lot of people have no one they really love or people who love them because it remains bullshit. It's all front. They don't say what they think or feel. They say bullshit. And I became, uh, uh, my father died when I, was, when I was 11 years old, and that was a profound experience. Now, before you say, ah, that's why he's mentally ill and that's why he's crazy, his father died when he was 11, I can tell you it was an incredibly painful experience. But painful experiences are not traumas. A trauma is being hit by a car, being shot by a bullet. Painful experiences like your father dying when you're 11 or a war that you go through or having cancer don't make you sick. They change you. They change how you see the world. And for those children who grew up around me with parents and who, who didn't have the kind of life that happened to me after my father died and my mother found herself having to work and leave children, two children on the street to fend for themselves, uh, which was another added pain in her life, because I could someday talk about the pain in her life, was I don't know how she survived her life. See? Um, I used to be angry at her, but when I really understood her life, like I understood the lives of many of the people I used to call patients, or I've come to understand my own life, to stop calling yourself or others names, as I'll get to in a moment, and you realize that people are shaped by these experiences. They can't see the world the same way. And one of the things that happened to me when my father died is that I realized at the age of 11, anything that can happen, to, can, anything can happen to anyone, good or bad, and there ain't nobody in control. Okay. I never really believed in God. I was never very religious. Neither were my parents. They had watched over the preceding years of the Holocaust take place in World War II. And they understood what I learned afterwards. Okay. Uh, none of us could believe that there was a man in charge in the sky who made all this happen. And nothing since has ever made me believe that. So I became skeptical of bullshit, my own, more difficult than others. Uh, uh, um, there's a wonderful book called, um, um, <laughs> another name, uh, what was the book by uh, Postman on education? Yeah, uh, uh, Teaching is a Subversive Activity. And it says a good education helps you develop a crap finder. And the best thing that can happen to somebody when they come out of school is that they have a really good crap finder. And, and there's so much crap around. I mean, the crap is endless. And so I, I developed a kind of a crap finder. And I no longer believed that anyone was in charge. Uh, I had to develop my skills. We all do. And we can be in control of our lives at any given moment, a small amount, and the rest of it is in the lap of society and the events that shape us. Uh, if a war comes to your country, there's very little you can do to control the events. You're caught in a hurricane. I live in Florida, and friends of ours, we went on a boat today, and the thunderstorm started coming up, and we started to talk about what we'll do in a hurricane. And the fact of the matter is, if a hurricane blows into where we're living, uh, we have to hope for luck. And for me, there's no one in charge of the luck. What happens, happens, although I'm a scientist. And I became a pretty good scientist. And I want to talk for a moment about science and skepticism. 
Science says you learn by observation. You see, if you want to know something, you've got to learn by observation. And Freud was a great scientist in some ways. And what Freud taught me when I first started studying psychology and reading Freud is that anybody can turn any truth into bullshit if they feel emotionally that they need to. No way. He, was, he believed there was absolutely no way that if you turned your, your truth into bullshit, if you did something that was not true to be true, or you convinced yourself something was true, was in fact untrue, that you knew it. I don't believe that. I think deep down there's a piece of us that not always, but almost always knows when we're bullshitting ourselves. And I've done a show on anxiety uh, sometime earlier. Anxiety is the emotion that tells us that we're shitting ourselves or we're accepting something from somebody else that's bullshit and trying desperately to believe it's true. But the fact that we have the anxiety says, no, we somehow have to face the fact that we don't believe it's true. Now, by the way, what we're believing that we don't want to believe may be true. Or what is untrue, you see, may be untrue and want to believe it is true. I'm not talking about what is or is not true. It's what we deep down believe is to be true or false. Okay? And I became a good Freudian. I don't believe a lot about a lot else about Freud, but I believed about that. And I, all of this shaped me into being a scientist. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, when I went to high school, one of the teachers who shaped my life, a beloved man by the name of Sam Troik at Monroe High School in the Bronx, and I took him to every science course I could take. He was my chemistry teacher. And I took advanced chemistry. I took physics. I took anything I could take with this man. He was, he was incredible as a teacher. And in all the years I taught, the 40 years I taught, uh, I tried to emulate him as an educator. And I'm sh not sure I did, but I certainly, he certainly was one of my role models. And so when I entered college, I entered as a scientist, as, as a chemistry major, and I was going to be a chemist. I was terrible in math. Today I could sit down and have the confidence to study the same mathematics, the same differential and integral equations, and understand them. But then I was swimming. And so I went to my counselor, who happened to be the head of the psychology department, and uh, Dr. Woodruff, and I said to him at City College, and I said to him, uh, uh, I don't know what to do. And he said to me, well, what do you like to do? And I said, well, I like working with kids in the summer. I like going away to camp. Uh, I did like working with kids in the summer, but I like going away to camp to, A, get away from my mother and my home situation, and, B, to get laid in the woods if such was my luck for it, it that to happen. But I did like working with kids. He said, well, you like working with kids, try psychology. And the story became I fell in love with it, the very word psychology to this day is something I love. And I love all the ideas in the mixed-up field of psychology, and I should tell you that I'm a kind of an intellectual. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm smarter than anyone else. An intellectual uh, uh, may be someone who can't cross the street by himself, but intellectuals are people who love ideas for their own sake. There's a wonderful book written many years ago by Richard Hofstad, a historian, uh, called anti-intellectualism in America. And he points out that Americans are incredibly intelligent people. They're inventive. They do things. They know how to make money. They know how to start businesses. Intellectuals, such as myself, 
Uh, I could run any big business into the ground in 13 seconds. Until I started doing my, my uh, banking online, uh, which was only about four or five years ago, I would never, never balance the checkbook. And if I could tell you the chaos that occurred in my life economically because my checkbook wasn't balanced, that would be a whole other show. But that would be a comedy of errors, and I'm not going to go into that. Um, the, 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 the science uh, that I was interested in uh, was a science that was critical of many of the ideas of psychology because I came to recognize that we psychologists and psychiatrists can bullshit ourselves and others just as well as anybody else. Uh, we didn't, nobody had a, 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 uh, a market on truth, you see. Um, somebody recently said to me, boy, you have strong opinions, and I do. When I see dangerous bullshit, I do get very strong and angry about it and, and, and talk about it. Although I'm not going to tell you I know the truth. I really don't. Uh, I really seem to know more about what's not true than what is true, and I'll get into that in a little bit. So I love science and I love psychology, but I soon became critical of psychology, the science of psychology. And let me tell you why. I'm not going to go into this very long, but you have to understand it a little bit. Psychology tried to emulate the more successful sciences of physics, chemistry, and biology. Okay. Now, one of the great experiments that changed the world was done by Galileo, who took a 10-pound bowling ball and a 20-pound bowling ball on top of the uh, Leaning Tower of Pisa and threw them off. And prevailing belief was, at that time, that the 20-pound ball would fall twice as fast as the 10-pound ball. And what he discovered, Galileo, is that both balls hit the ground at essentially the same time. I'm not going to go into gravity and what gravity is and why this was a revolutionary idea. And by the way, was one of the things that got him house arrested, brought in front of the Inquisition. And when he died, his soul was sent to purgatory. And it was only in 1992 that the current pope, I think that was John XXIII, commuted his did a mass and let poor Galileo's soul go from purgatory to heaven. He was forgiven for saying the scientific things he said because the basic ideas of society ran very different. Right? It was obvious to people who never threw balls off a roof that the too heavy a ball would have to fall faster than the light ball. Now, let's go to psychology. Psychology imitated that science. It said we're going to understand behavior by the forces that act upon it. Well, that leaves something out. So let's go back up to the Leaning Tower of Pizza, Pizza and throw two things off, a bowling ball and a person. Now, physically, they both hit the ground at the same time. Okay? But what I'm interested in is, the difference between what a bowling ball feels when it's falling to the ground and what a person feels. And I don't think a bowling ball cares or feels anything about falling off the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But the person screams, ah, all the way down. And if they survive, you can ask them, what did it feel like to fall off the Leaning Tower of Pisa? And for me, that's what psychology as a science became. It can't be the way you examine chemical reactions or bowling balls or physics or all of the, the major sciences. I don't believe when we understand the working of the brain, which we're not anywhere near understanding, okay, we'll still understand 
the psychology of a person who grows up in a given home, in a given era, in a given situation, in a given socioeconomic level, and what it feels like to be that human being. Because what it feels like to be each of us, the story we tell about our lives, the truths we live by, that is what needs to be understood if we want to understand a human being and why one human being goes to medical school and becomes a successful, well-adjusted citizen and somebody else lies in a garbage heap heap drinking themselves to death. One is not well and one is not sick, but one's conscious experience has been shaped differently than another. And I'm not even looking for who to blame. So the question for me is, what shapes human thinking? That became my interest as a psychologist. And therefore, I diverged from many of the, of the scientists who were studying psychology and doing experiments using a model that I don't believe, and many people who think like me, ever produced very much of useful knowledge. And so I really didn't become a mainstream psychologist that would be in the American Psychological Association or any of the other major organizations that used to define psychology as the science of behavior. I very early began, although I didn't put it into words till much later, that psychology is a kind of an art. And what you deal with when you tell stories is literature and poetry and music that we're much closer and should be much closer but when I, to, to go the arts and the sci- than the sciences, the hard sciences. Now, again, I'm not alone. I can give you a whole bibliography of people who agree with me. But at the moment you say something like that, you're no longer part of the mainstream. And I can tell you, as someone who's experienced this, people in the mainstream, especially those who have their doubts, like people in major religions who have their doubts, don't want to hear you criticize or raise doubts for them about the way they live their lives. The essential truth that people live by, they are willing to kill for. And if you don't believe me, pick up any newspaper or any day, and you'll see that that's so. There are 2,000 major religions on this planet. Each of them thinks the other 1,999 is heretical, apostatical, and wrong. And throughout history, people in one religion have been clearing the earth of people in another religion. To me, as a scientist, I want to hear the stories that people tell and to keep an open mind, there can't be much orthodoxy. And one of the things I've learned is that one of the things that shapes the way people think is religion. And yet, we don't ever dare talk about that. I'll get to that in a moment. So the question is, what shapes thinking? And my answer is, it's so unbelievably complex, the factors that shape us, that I don't think anybody will ever fully understand another human being. Again, I can give you a whole literature. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, my favorite science fiction writer of all times, who died not too long ago, said that no system of intelligence can understand another system of intelligence equal to or greater than itself. So that when Clark wrote his books, there were always intelligences greater than us in those books, but you never got to see them. You would see their artifacts, you would see uh, their works, but you would never get to see them 
because to describe an intelligence greater than yourself is to reduce it to your intelligence. That's why we understand our children better than they understand us. Their intelligence has to develop. Their capacity to understand has to develop. The problem is many of us stop asking questions. We stop reading. We stop developing our thinking. And we believe what we've been told. And these beliefs we will kill for because we become terrified that they might not be true. Some of the most awful damage done to children by teachers, by, by clerics, and by parents are when children say, I don't believe that, whether it's about their religion, about what goes on in family life, whatever. You learn not to say these things. And many psychologists learn, don't say what you really believe because you won't be able to earn a living and you'll be drummed out of the field. And I can tell you, I'm not going to go into the bruises and the battering I took as a psychologist, but I was lucky. I wrote books. I had tenure. Uh, one of the things that sometimes make me believe in God is the fact of tenure. The tenure should not be uh, a, a, something you give a teacher so they never have to read another book or never study another lesson. Tenure uh, is the guarantee from society that those who are supposed to speak up and, and criticize orthodoxy will be protected by society for doing so. That's what tenure is supposed to be. And I got tenure. And I lived in a great university that had a very liberal tradition, City University. Uh, New York City is a place different than most other places. Uh, you know, a lot of conservatives would like to saw New York City off or maybe the whole state, float it out to sea and use it for target practice. Uh, but that's because there is a difficulty in New York for living in New York of establishing or remaining in certain orthodoxies. So we are very complex, and we like to simplify things. And we simplify things in psychology through various theories, but mostly through labels. And for those of you who have been listening to this show, you know how often I speak about this. When we don't understand why someone can't learn something, and none of us know why we learn or why we can't learn. When we don't understand what goes on in the brain and we don't understand what motivates us to learn or not learn, we simply say the person's stupid. If, on the other hand, a person can learn all kinds of things that we can't or won't learn, they're a genius. You see? The genius is someone that the word becomes magically an explanation for something that really we have no understanding about, just as stupidity does or stubborn, or, or, or he's an asshole, or schmuck. We have racial labels, we have religious labels, we have all manner of cultural labels. And from my point of view, none of these labels explain anything. In fact, they block understanding. When you label somebody, you're convinced you know A, all about them, and B, you're justified in acting in a certain way towards them. When you call somebody a heretic because you're terrified that maybe their religious beliefs make more sense than yours, you now can be justified in shutting them down and, if necessary, even killing them. And my field as a science, that to me should understand people, should never be doing that. And yet, that's exactly what my field has done. We created a set of labels and pretended there were diagnoses, psychiatric diagnoses schizophrenia, post-traumatic stress disorder, borderline personality disorder. Let me tell you a little bit about borderline personality disorder. 
most of the people who have been borderline personality disorder diagnosed, serious mental illness, are women who have been sexually abused when they were younger, physically, sexually, psychologically abused. The so-called borderline has trouble entering into relationships and trusting, particularly men. And until recently, most of the therapists in the field were men. And it really is frustrating when you can't get your patient to accept you and, to, and to, to, to understand that you might be on their side. So you turn against them and you say, see, it's not my problem to try and reach this individual. They're unreachable because they have a borderline personality disorder. Excuse me, darlings. Why should somebody who was raped by a brother or a father trust anyone? How do they know they can trust? If you can't trust those people who, who history and, and, and a genetics created, you see, that's the function of parents, to be those you can trust, to watch and model yourself after, who will teach you right from wrong and set you on a life so you can become a member, a productive, and for me more importantly, a creative member of society. If you can't trust these individuals, if these are the people who betray you, who do you trust? Is that a hard question? I don't think it's a hard question. But instead of trying to understand where these people come from and accepting the difficulty of working with such individuals and making them keep their appointments so they can pay their bills on time, because all of this becomes very important when this is how you live your life and earn your living. We call them a borderline personality. And we now have in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness hundreds and hundreds of bad names. And when I said to the people in ICSPP, calling somebody borderline and charging them money for it is the same as calling someone a schmuck and sending them a bill I became attacked and literally thrown off a listserv as being too disrespectful to the field and not being a nice guy. And it was at that point I realized I was on my own from that organization as well. I'll say it again. Most of the people who are seeing people they call patients and helping them learn about themselves are wonderful people. But to justify the field, to earn a living, to be paid for by health insurance, you have to pretend that not trusting people because you were raped when you were a child or not being able to work through in your mind the horrors you saw in a war or because you were neglected as a child, that all of these things are sicknesses and illnesses. And then the final straw, as all of you know, uh, is my final straw that made me walk away because I couldn't become part of the remain part of the field was these pills that our entire society decided to become like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Take a pill and feel better. Get stoned. Put some trivial television show on. And by the way, I love good many trivial shows. I love American Idol. I love So You Think You Can Dance. I watch these shows. My wife puts them on TiVo, and we watch them without ads. And I love these youngsters struggling, sometimes out of poverty and all kinds of difficulty, to become something. That they should be idols? Well, you know, I think that maybe someday the head of the debating team will also be an idol. 
Although, I, you know, I watched the U.S. Open, and I was awed by Tiger Woods playing on two broken bones and a damaged knee, playing 91 holes of golf and, in the end, winning. Uh, I think all of these people should be rewarded and admired, but someday maybe an idol will be the head of a debating team or an American poet. Do you know that there's not one poet or classical composer in the United States uh, who can earn a living? They have to teach. They have to teach. They don't want to teach, but they have to teach. Uh, and they can't produce the work that they might otherwise produce because that's not where we're at. But maybe that would be someday. So I love the field of psychology, but not what the field of psychology is. It's what I imagine it to be. I think we have to avoid all labels. I think that we have to get back to some basic ideas that life does some very strange and difficult things to people that shapes them in ways that makes them not trust, that makes them disconnect from themselves, that makes them bullshit themselves. It's very hard to tell the truth about ourselves if we feel that as a label, oh, I'm no good for thinking this, I'm no good for feeling this. God doesn't love me. Uh, other aspects of shaping. Uh, it took me such a long time. I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, when I, I, I graduated high school, when I went to college, uh, at the third year in college, a fourth year, I discovered I had to get a Ph.D. I think I've mentioned this before. And it was only because this wonderful professor, Dr. Stoll, put my arm behind my back and twisted it up to my head until I screamed that I would go to his office and fill out papers to be, get a Ph.D. That was not for me. I didn't think I was good enough smart enough. Uh, uh, there was nothing in my family history. And I met a friend of mine uh, who had gone to high school with me, and I said, what are you majoring in? He said, I'm pre-med. I graduate this year. I'm going to medical school. And I was in awe. Why? Because nobody on my block went to anything but prison. Well, I worked and lived in the Bronx. I, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I discovered not only does religion shape you, but your socioeconomic standing shapes you. These values shape you in profound ways that can shape you across a lifetime. None of this got taken into account. The only thing that got taken into account when I was trained as a psychology is that if your mother was screwed up, she could screw you up. Sometimes even your father was allowed to screw you up. But... Maybe one of the reasons your mother screwed you up and your father screwed you up is because they couldn't hold a job or because their psychological training, they didn't have the skills to earn the kind of living that would allow them to do this, to do the kind of job that they otherwise wanted to do. Okay? None of this was attended to. Sometimes I think to make people better, you have to make the world better. Since the 1960s, anybody who says they want to make the world better and bring peace to the world is called a liberal, and a liberal is a bad person. How did that happen? How did it happen that the many ways in which the world causes us pain and fails to allow us to become our full human creative potential makes us sick and requires a lifetime of drugs rather than getting together in a union, getting together in a group, getting together and getting an education and finding ways to fight back against a society that often believes bullshit. Mark Twain said it. He said, if everybody believes it, it's probably false. And when everybody agrees with me, I know I'm full of shit. It's time to change my opinion and read another book 
or find another idea. Now, to me, this is basic truth. Basic truth. Most people will kill you rather than listen to a new idea. It's painful. And it is painful to learn that when you're diagnosing people as a psychologist, you're doing nothing but calling them a bad name. And that by taking money from insurance companies is to me a kind of fraud is incredibly painful with painful consequences. And I don't expect any one individual to necessarily change it, but it has to be discussed. Things do change. We're about to change our way of traveling, not because we want to, but because the way the world is changing, it'll have to be changed because most of us won't be able to afford to travel from one place to another because of the costs that, that automobiles and oil and gas have mounted on us. So, I love a good discussion about this. I would love some feedback, your ideas about this. Uh, I know that what I sound say sounds radical because the way the field has become, the basic idea that if somebody is unhappy and messed up and can't maintain their relationships as they wish they would or others wish they would, they're sick and require drugs, that's become the mainstay. Although I say taking a three-year-old who is worried about his parents getting divorced and doesn't behave well in nursery and drugging him, that's radical. That's radical. So, uh, I will spend the rest of my life talking about these things. I don't find many people who really want to talk about these things with me as professionals. Uh, it, it becomes very difficult. So I do my show, and I get some feedback from some of the guests. And for those of you who are listening, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. For those of you who will listen later on, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And see, I don't have to indulge myself with another show. I think I've said what I wanted to say. I am now told I have three minutes remaining. Anybody want to call in? Anybody want to write a message on the chat? And I will spend some time. Thank you very much for your honesty, your opinions, and for speaking your truth, regardless of what others think or say. Well, I have nothing to lose, Teja Vu, you see. When I was working in a university, it was a much scarier thing to do. And so I thank you for your opinion about my opinions. Uh, on the other hand, I have nothing to lose. My pension comes in regardless of what. Uh, you two, Marion, uh, you and I are becoming good friends. Someday I'd love to meet you. Uh, uh, and, and have a cup of coffee and, and see who you are uh, because uh, you give me great pleasure coming here each week and, and, uh, and giving me your opinions and asking the questions you ask because they're very, very, very good questions. So uh, exactly what all must do, but as a professional in the field where others hold their truth due to what others might do, I love your authentic whatever. Again, it's easy to do what I do now, especially because I am retired. It doesn't cost me anything. Nobody even knows where I live. By the way, I love Block Talk Radio because of this. Uh, I think the Internet has an enormous capacity to change human ideas and human behavior. Uh, specifically by its nature is that, yes, nobody really can uh, control ideas in the same way. But so many people, by the time they're adults, simply couldn't think their way through a paper bag because uh, they've just been taught to believe and the thought of even coming up with an idea different than the ones they were taught as children by their teachers, their priests, 
uh, uh, their parents is simply too terrifying to do because it, it, it labels them. It makes them bad people. Okay, folks, thank you so much. And um, I will be here next week. I'm going to talk about uh, uh, reworking your relationship with your parents, changing the story of childhood to a story of adulthood or, or, or something called maturity, which was the show I was going to do this week until Marion sent me that nice message uh, that led me to think about doing this show. And I don't think I was too self-indulgent here. So take care and goodbye to you all. Bye.